Well, today we're going to talk about religion and politics. We're told that you shouldn't bring up religion or politics in polite company. But Mark 12 brings us exactly to religion and politics, not just religion or politics. We get a peek into what Jesus thought about civil government here. And not just government, but taxes. Not Texas, taxes. Would you be surprised to learn that Jesus was pro-government? Would you be surprised to learn that Jesus was pro-taxes? Or was he? Maybe it's not that simple. You see, in Mark 12, verse 13 to 17, a question is put to Jesus in a very pro-con sort of way, black, white, yes or no. And Jesus' answer is a bit mystifying, not because he dodges the question like modern politicians seeking to gain more votes, but because his answer is revolutionary. Those who hear it say that it's amazing. They marvel at what he said. Really, his answer pleases no one in the story. I'm sure for them it was not just amazing, but even frustrating. His answer is difficult to categorize. It was simultaneously confounding, silencing, bewildering, and earth-shattering. And yet what he said had far more to do with his plan and his ways than just relating to government or taxes and our involvement with them. Here's the setting before we get to Mark 12, verse 13, and start reading there. Let's remember the setting. This is Tuesday of the Passion Week. We're still on Tuesday. In fact, if you look down in your Bibles, back in chapter 11, verse 20, that was the beginning of Tuesday, and then Tuesday goes all the way to the end of chapter 13. It's a very busy day. A lot is crammed into it. So this is Tuesday, that is two days before his arrest and three days before his crucifixion. The day before he judged the temple, he condemned the temple and the religious leaders of it. And then his authority on Tuesday morning, his authority was challenged by those religious leaders. He then told a parable, the beginning of chapter 12, which Pastor Ron showed us last week. He told a parable of tenants who were put in charge of a master's land and vineyard. And when the master sent messengers to his land to reap some of the fruit from his, from his vineyard, these tenants beat and mocked and, and even killed some of the messengers. So the master finally sent his son as a messenger. And they would not listen even to the son but instead beat and killed him. Jesus tells us, Mark explains and makes it clear that Jesus is the beloved son. He's also the cornerstone of Psalm 118, that God is building all things around. He will be rejected as this cornerstone, and yet it is the Lord's doing we are told, as Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, it is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous. We're also told at the end of that last scene 
that these religious leaders, verse 12, perceived that the parable was about them. They realized they were the tenants. They had gone against God. They wouldn't give to God in a way that he demanded, at least according to Jesus. They probably don't believe him. And hence, they wanted to ruin him. They sought to arrest him, verse 12 tells us. In just a couple of days, they'll do just that. But here, they couldn't. Not on Tuesday, not yet, because they feared the people, we're told. They were afraid of those who seemed so excited about Jesus. They couldn't arrest him yet. And so now, perhaps still very early on this Tuesday morning, they try a different tactic. That's verses 13 to 17, which we'll look at today. Their different tactic is to pose a question to Jesus about taxes to Caesar, to Rome. Really what you got right here in Mark 12 is an intersection of death and taxes. Death is on the horizon, and taxes are certain. Benjamin Franklin was right. Death and taxes are certain things, according to Jesus. Here's what he says in chapter 12, verse 13. It says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. I see three movements to this short account. There's a question for Jesus, and then there are really two parts to his response. So first, there's a clever question to trap Jesus. They intend to trap him. It says, verse 13, in his talk. To trap him in his talk. It's a trap indeed. In the original Greek, trap is a word used for hunting or fishing. They're going on the hunt. They were about to drop some bait. Jesus was their prey. And notice there are these strange bedfellows partnering together to do this. Pharisees and Herodians. Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. They were sort of the separatists. And they were also very patriotic in their Judaism. Herodians were Jewish, but just barely. They were hip, progressive. They were liberal. And they were all about maneuvering for political clout in power. These two groups, as you can imagine, agreed on very little and liked each other very little. But they liked Jesus very much less, you could say. They disliked him together and they partnered in trying to stop him, to get rid of him. Imagine today... Leaders of the Tea Party partnering up with big government Democrats or Hollywood liberals partnering up with old, crusty Republicans. It just doesn't happen. And yet we've all heard of the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's what's going on here 
And that's what started back in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, after Jesus forgave a man of his sins and then healed him of his paralysis, we read that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That's what they're seeking to do here, seeking to destroy him. But they start with flattery. Verse 14, teacher, we know you are true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're a straight shooter, Jesus. You'll tell it like it is. We appreciate that about you. You're not swayed by appearances, and you truly teach the way of God. They spoke better than they knew. All these things are true of Jesus, and yet they're insincere. This is just a setup for their well-planned question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? This is the exact opposite of an open-ended question. There's no room for nuance or explanation going on here. Twice they insist this is an either-or. This is a yes or no. There are two boxes. You have to check one of them. It's a clever question. It's not nearly as innocent as it may at first sound. This is not just a political question. They're not just asking Jesus whether he's pro-government or whether he's pro-taxes. The tax they're talking about, of course, is a tax to Caesar. It's a tax to Rome paid by Jews and all others. The Romans had overtaken the Jewish land from the Hasmoneans who had it before them, but, but, but these Jews were in subjugation under the Romans at this time. They were in their own promised land and didn't own it. They were in slavery of sorts, and some of them were literally in slavery. They were taxed heavily. They were oppressed. The tax in question here was a tributary tax, a tax to honor Rome, a way to say thank you for being under Roman rule. So you can imagine it's a bit of a slap in the face. And their question about whether to pay that tax, again, is quite clever because it's like heads I win, tails you lose. If he says yes, he's damned. If he says no, he's damned, in a sense. If Jesus answers yes to the question of paying taxes to Caesar, he's a Roman lackey. He's no revolutionary. He's worse than a guy two decades before, Judas of Galilee. Not the Judas, one of the twelve, a different Judas. Judas of Galilee, two decades before, led a revolt against Rome over this very tax. He was unsuccessful. He was pretty quickly arrested and killed. But at least he was a patriot. At least he tried. At least he was against the machine. And people who are so intrigued about Jesus at this time, if, if, if they see that he's compliant with Roman taxes, they're going to conclude he's certainly no Messiah, at least not their kind. But if Jesus answers no to the question of the, the Herodians and Pharisees, that we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then everyone knows how that's going to go. Judas of Galilee is case in point. He was killed for not paying that tax and not honoring Rome. And the Romans don't want another revolt. 
That one was cleaned up fairly quickly two decades before, but, but they're inconvenient and, and you don't want them. And so you want to stomp them out as early as possible. And if this Jesus guy with a pretty big following is found to be anti-tax, hence anti-Rome and anti-Caesar, well, you get rid of them as fast as you can. It looks like it's a no-win situation for Jesus here, a catch-22. It's the kind of situation politicians always seek to avoid, the kind of question that journalists work hard trying to come up with. But then secondly, Jesus responds with a more clever question, and this one to expose hypocrisy. It's a more clever question that he asks them in verses 15 and 16. He says, Mark says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Why tempt me? Why try me? The same word that was used of Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness back in chapter one. Jesus says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And here's the question. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Notice Jesus didn't have a denarius with him, whether that's because of his poverty or out of principle, we don't know. But it's interesting, he doesn't have a coin with him, and they do. These questioners do. They have a denarius. This is almost certainly what the coin looked like that we're talking about here. Here's a first century denarius. Uh, it was worth maybe about 100 bucks back then in their day compared with what we would think of it today. So that's not something you want to lose. But it's also not a real heavy tax. Certainly not what your tax bill was last year, I bet. You can see that some of the letters are worn off here. By the way, you can get these on eBay right from the first century for about 1500 bucks. If you're wondering what to get me for my birthday, that'd be pretty cool if I had one of those. Um, you could come to my office anytime and look at it if you'd like. You can see on this one, it's worn off and you can't see all of the, the print that's, that's, that would have been there originally. The image, of course, is Caesar. Caesar Tiberius, to be exact, not Julius. As for the inscription that's worn off and even abbreviated originally when it was put on the coin, and, and put in Latin, by the way, here's what it reads in English. Tiberius, Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Son of the divine. Son of God. The other side of the coin is Tiberius's mother, in the print there, translated, reads, high priest. So you've got son of God in the front with Caesar, and you've got Caesar's mom on the back with high priest. And notice she's, she's holding an olive branch, the symbol of peace, Pax Romano, right? The peace of Rome. It's funny, peace was in Rome much of the time, but it was so bloody to get that peace, wasn't it? It's hardly, it's hardly true. This slogan, the peace of Rome, it's ironic. You can imagine how offensive this coin would have been to a faithful Jew for it to say son of God, for it to say high priest, for it to have an olive branch of true peace. It's blasphemous, it's idolatry. The coin was a constant reminder to faithful Jews of their subjugation under Rome and of Rome's persistent blasphemy. 
Because essentially the coin was Roman propaganda of their idolatrous religion and politics. So the tax which was paid with one of these coins, remember, was a tributary tax, a thank you to Rome for their Roman rule. You can see now even more why the question that the Herodians and Pharisees put to Jesus was so clever. Essentially, they're saying, Jesus, would you pay with a blasphemous coin to the quote-unquote son of God and the high priest? Would you do that, Jesus? You can also hopefully understand now that their, their, their plan backfired when Jesus asked for a coin. You see, they had one. They had one. They were asking Jesus whether he would identify himself with Rome. But they have the coin that says son of God, that says high priest. Jesus is essentially implying, you're questioning my participation with Rome? You've got one of these coins with you. Jews in this day were allowed to have their own coins and even pay their taxes to Rome with their own coins, Jewish coins. And yet these questioners, they have the blasphemous Roman coinage on them. It means that they bought in. They're with the system. They're against the system at times and they're, they're coy to it as well at other times because they loved money. We're told in a number of places the Pharisees loved money or they were rich. There's no question about the Herodians and their famous love for extravagance and their chumminess with Rome. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. His question about the coin exposes their hypocrisy. Thirdly, added to that question, we have a revolutionary thesis that changed the world. Verse 17 gives us a revolutionary thesis that changed the world. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This is one of the most famous sayings of Christ in all the Bible. It's almost impossible to deny that that saying has been the most influential and most quoted political line in all of history. I mean, far more than Pax Romano. Far more than ask not what your country can do for you. Far more than I have a dream. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Render to God that which is God's. That little phrase changed the world. It was not a non-answer. Some people have thought it that way. Jesus was just sort of dodging them with his words. It wasn't that. Jesus was not attempting to play two hands of poker at the same time. He was not being uncommitted, sort of saying, a, uh, on the one hand there's this, and on the other hand there's that. He was not waffling. He was not providing them with a you decide kind of statement. You decide what goes to Caesar, and you decide what goes to God. It was also not just an irrefutable rebuttal. But it was that. It was irrefutable. They were confounded by this. They marveled at this. They, they walked away frustrated, confounded at what Jesus did. Now, this is far more than just a confounding statement. This is not just Jesus, the great debater. Not just Jesus, the rhetorician. 
This is not just great argument and rhetoric here, but it is that. Let's not forget that. Let's just pause and remember that much of what the Old Testament describes of a Messiah who will come includes things like he'll come with wisdom and understanding and discernment and God's judgment in the mind of the Lord. Just read Isaiah 11, the first few verses or so there with that in mind. We often think of the Messiah as one who will come, and yes, he'll die, so some parts of the Bible talk about a suffering servant who will come, and, and others talk about a king who will come, and he'll reign, and, and yet there's this neglected bit in the Old Testament about the Messiah who will come, and he's really smart. He's really witty. He's really knowledgeable and understanding, and, and here's Jesus showing that to us. You have the smartest and best opponents, political opponents, religious opponents. They're crafting their best gotcha question for Jesus, and it looks like he's in the trap. And before you know it, the trap is sprung, and they're in it, not him. Jesus is the Messiah who comes with wisdom and understanding and knowledge, but this is not just verbal jujitsu. It changed the world. How did this little saying change the world? How was it revolutionary? Well, let's take each of those phrases separately. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's the first half of it. Think of this statement with the light of the Old Testament shining on it. Everything you know about Old Testament God and nation, let that shine with full weight down on this saying. Then do you see that Jesus was suggesting something radically new? When he said, render to Caesar, the Roman godless blasphemous ruler, that which is Caesar's, he was acknowledging the government. He was legitimizing that rule. Not that the rule was good or perfect or, or, or noble or righteous, but it was legitimate. In this one simple but profound statement, Jesus was now detaching his followers from an Old Testament monarchy or theocracy. This is a different form of government. He was dismissing a merely wooden, literal interpretation of those promises of old about the land. He was proving that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not just unlike the kingdoms like Rome, but, but it's also unlike the Jewish kingdoms of the old covenant. So he was not here restoring the old covenant kingdom to its former glory in the days of David or Solomon. He was birthing something new of far greater glory, a kingdom not of this world, but one which would be scattered all over the world, starting in the Roman world. He was demonstrating what he's been saying that the way forward and the plan of God was not a militaristic resistance or an overthrow of the Roman subjugation, but instead true cosmic peace that comes only through his blood and resurrection. 
he was legitimizing government, human government, even very imperfect government. So God's people are now detached from any one single nation or government. And government is good. Jesus says here, as other New Testament writers do, government should be supported. It's good. It's from God. It should be supported. Human government is not legitimate because, according to Freud, we all have an inexplicable need to be controlled. Human government is not legitimate simply for economic purposes, as Marx taught, as, ironically, as capitalism also believes. Human government is not legitimate because it has bigger guns than the rest of the people do. Human government is not only legitimate when the voice of the people is heard. Human government is not legitimate simply because our forefathers decided to have it and enough of us still buy into it. And, though this is getting closer to the truth, human government at root is not legitimate because people are wicked and need to be restrained. That is true. People are wicked and they need to be restrained for a common good. But that is not the fundamental reason why human government is legitimate. Because we have human government in the Bible before there's a fall, before there's sin. God tasked Adam with this. Multiply on the earth and subdue it. Govern it. Lead it. Set up government. God has ordained government. Even imperfect governments, this side of the fall. It's just like families. Families are imperfect this side of the fall. But God has ordained that families be They're not perfect. They don't have to be Christian families in order to be true families. A lot of them do a lot of harm to those in the family. Most of them do a lot of good. Most are better than bad, right? There's a lot of good, and God has ordained that. In the same way, he's ordained government. Therefore, anarchy is inherently godless, and anarchy is hopelessly naive. And optimistic. Sarah and, I, Sarah and I have a family member who just recently showed his hand to us that he is a full-blown anarchist. I couldn't believe it. Really? I, he said, it's all going down, referring to government. It's, it's soon going down, and then we'll all flourish. At least the strong ones will. I thought, man, what a different worldview that is than Christianity None of us trust ourselves to be left unfettered to do whatever we want. We don't believe that any of us would flourish without just laws. We're just that wicked. And we don't want a state or a society where only the strong survive. We don't want that. That's an upside-down gospel. Our gospel is not for the strong, but for the weak. Not for the righteous, but for sinners. Back to politics, though. There are three key texts later in the New Testament which I think basically are unpacking and further unfolding what Jesus gave us here in Mark 12, which is also in Luke 20 and in Matthew 22. 
Let me just read these passages for you. Maybe you want to write down these references, have these on hand, study them on your own. They're pretty self-explanatory. We won't have time to talk about them for me to explain them more or anticipate questions, but they're important that we read them as further elaborations of what Jesus taught us here in Mark 12, such as what Paul wrote in Romans 13. Hear this. He said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers generally are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and generally you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing, generally speaking. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That's the most thorough of these three passages. The second one is 1 Timothy 2, where Paul tells us we should pray for those in authority. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You want to pray for freedoms? Paul says, good, do that. We want to be free to obey God and do his will and not be encumbered with opposition to it. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, all kinds of people, not just the lowly, but also kings, governors, those in authority. Pray for their salvation and pray for the freedom to exercise your godliness publicly and and, and thoroughly, if the Lord wills. Another passage is 1 Peter 2. There, Peter urges us as sojourners and exiles, those in the city and of a country, but those who are also, in a sense, just passing through. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, generally speaking, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Even more, love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. Don't fear the emperor. You fear God. But honor the emperor. These passages describe for us that we are a people of dual citizenship. We have a citizenship in heaven. We have a kingdom that's not of this world, and yet we know that we are among and in and part of the kingdoms of men. We are in this world, 
and yet we're not of it. And you put all this together and the implications are that we should pray and that we should honor and we should obey and we should pay taxes. We also know that because they're sinners, those who lead us, they're not perfect. Far from it. Sometimes they do do harm to those who are good and right. But we honor, we obey where we can, and we thoughtfully engage the system and the society in whatever capacity that nation or government allows us to. And Christians can live out that biblical approach to the state and society wherever they may find themselves. Wherever they may find themselves. Christians can take these passages and apply it to their context with more or less freedom, with more or less pain. Don't forget that Romans 12 and 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 2 and, and even Mark's account of the gospel story of Jesus, these things were written not in the day when Jesus spoke them, but a couple decades later, and they were written during the time of the famously cruel, persecuting Nero. I mean, Rome's always been Rome. Rome's always a big bully. But Rome was even worse when Mark wrote down for us what Jesus said and sent it to the churches all over the Roman world. And yet, we know the gospel flourished in that Roman world despite severe persecution. The gospel flourished in that Roman world. In God's good providence, the Romans came up with a great interstate system, the Roman roads. The Roman roads were the means by which missionaries traveled about to places that have, to cities that have never heard about Jesus. And there they planted churches and Christians gathered in worship. It was that Roman aqueduct that gave drink to those thirsty travelers who are heralding the gospel all over that Roman world. It was Roman persecution of Christians that looked like opposition. It looked unfortunate, but actually testified to the genuineness of the message. As Christians were persecuted in this persecuting Roman world, it showed to those around who could see and those who would hear the message, these people are for real. This is legit. Some believed because of it. You think of Paul's imprisonment in a Roman prison. Far from chaining up the gospel like they thought they were doing, they were giving Paul a new audience, the Roman guard. And Paul says, a bunch of Roman guards say hi to you, Philippians. They're brothers now. The gospel is not bound. And Jesus here in Mark 12 said to pay taxes to the government that would only three days later crucify him. That's just, that's staggering, isn't it? That's how Jesus thought of government. He thought that you should pay for those who oppose you. You should support that which also condemns you. The gospel can flourish anywhere. It has flourished all over this world. 
Mark Dever, commenting on this passage, says, Christians are, by God's grace, cockroaches. We can survive anything. We are not dependent, Dever says, we are not dependent on just governments for the gospel going forth. We will survive. The gospel will flourish everywhere. And therefore, we are now an international people, not hitched up to one nation and one government, but inherently an international people. And one day, Jesus' blood will get what it paid for as he's ransomed for God, men and women from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation, a multitude which no man can number. We're beginning to see that here in Mark 12 when Jesus says, not flee the Roman world, stay where you are. Not fight the Roman world, stay where you are. Not faint before its persecution, Stay where you are. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And give to God the things that are God's. If patriotic Jews would have been shocked and horrified that Jesus said, Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, imagine how incensed Romans would be to hear Jesus essentially imply, Caesar is not God. There is God, and there is Caesar. And despite what the coin says, Caesar's not God. God is God, and God will get his. These are distinguishable entities, overlapping but distinguishable entities. We shouldn't read into this a full-blown Jeffersonian separation of church and state, but there is a distinction if... Jesus could talk about Caesar over here and God over here. There's distinction. But they're not equals, Caesar and God. God is God. Caesar is not God. And so when there is conflict between the demands of Caesar and the demands of God, you always go with God. God wins, even at great cost even with great threat, or for us in our culture perhaps, even if there's embarrassment with friends and family. If the state in the future makes it illegal for us to teach our children the faith, we will teach our children the faith. If the state requires pastors one day to marry, quote unquote, marry a man with a man and a woman with a woman, we will not comply. If the state outlaws evangelism someday, the public preaching of the gospel, the worship of the saints meeting together for worship, we will meet and we will preach. We may not do it in this building. They may take our land, but we will meet and we will worship, and we will pray. We will resist. We will, like Daniel, go to the lion's den rather than give up prayer. We will, like the three Hebrew children, go into the furnace. Our God is able to deliver us. But even if not, we will not bow before that great statue, Nebuchadnezzar. And just like the, the midwives, the Hebrew midwives who hid Moses in the reeds, 
rather than let him be killed. Just like the apostles in Acts chapter 4 who are brought before the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel and they say, well, you decide what you think is right, but we can't help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. And then a chapter later, they're arrested again and they say, it is not right for us to obey you and not God. We must obey God, not man. On and on we could go. Otherwise, give Caesar his due. What does Caesar's do? Taxes, high or low. Honor and obedience. According to Paul, also prayer. That's Caesar's due. But that's it. Caesar's not God. What does God's do? Everything. Everything is his. Whose image was on the coin? Caesar's. Whose image is on you? God's. You're his. The same word used of Jesus here when he says, what's the image on the coin? Is the same word in the Greek Old Testament of right there at creation, Genesis 1. God made them male and female in his image. We bear his image, and so we're his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in it. You, Christian or not, you are his. And this was just what Jesus was talking about in that parable before with the tenants. Remember, they wouldn't give to the owner. They wouldn't give. They wouldn't give. They wouldn't give. And now Jesus not only answers their question about taxes, but he adds to that answer with give to God that which is God's. These religious leaders, though religious, though respected, they hadn't given to God. They had kept from themselves. They were his. You are his. We are all his. And we Christians are twice his, you could say. We are his by virtue of creation and bearing his image, and we are also his image, we are also his by virtue of salvation and reconciliation, by being purchased with the precious blood of Christ. We're his. We're twice his. And so if it if it's sin to not pay Caesar a hundred dollar tax, and I think Jesus says that it is. And if it's sin for us today to not pay the taxes that we owe the U.S. government, I think that it is. I, don't say, I didn't say pay more than you should or pay more than, you, than you're supposed to or pay more than, than you need to. Pay what, pay what they say to pay. Yeah, use the calculator. Have a guy figure it out for you. Get the, get the, uh, you know, the bonuses that come back and, and child credit and all that. Yes, use all that. But pay your taxes. But if it's sin to not pay our piddly taxes to the U.S. government, how much greater a sin is it when we don't give to the creator God what is his due? Him who is infinitely greater than the U.S. government or the Roman Empire. More powerful, more caring, more protecting, more providing, more wise, more all-knowing. He's our God. We give him his due. 
Abraham Kuyper, at the founding of the Free University of Amsterdam, he gave this famous line. He said, there is not one square inch in all of creation whereby the exalted Christ does not say, mine, mine. It's easy to think through this passage of Mark 12 here simply in terms of government and taxes. And we've taken a lot of time this morning to talk about government and taxes, partly because it's good for us to apply that to our modern-day situation and because there's a lot of fuzzy thinking about it, how Christians should relate to the state these days. But, but, but don't let that communicate the wrong thing to you today. Don't miss the fact that Jesus' emphasis in the climactic moment of this was not what he said about Caesar or what he said about taxes or governments. It's what he said about God. Government is good, but God is God. So love him with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind. We should be pro-government, but infinitely more so, we should be pro-God. And thus, whatever aims we have in this world, ideals we pursue with this nation, prayers that we make for this nation, whatever efforts we, we make in a political or social or in, in, in media, we do it knowing that there is something that trumps it all. There is something that undergirds it all. It is God in Christ, the King on his throne. As we draw near in upcoming months to a presidential election and have to endure months of campaigning and eventually have a new president, let us do whatever we do. Yes, vote. Yes, engage. Yes, talk. Yes, encourage others. Have free discourse in gentle and gentlemanly ways. But let us do it like 1 Corinthians 7 might instruct us to do it. I love these words in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says, The appointed time has, has grown very short. From now on, let those who mourn live as though there's no mourning. Let those who mourn as Christians live like they don't mourn. Ever been to a funeral like that? You're mourning. And yet there is something that undergirds it. Let those who rejoice, on the other hand, live as though they were not rejoicing. We're burdened people. We know what's at stake, even in our rejoicing. At times there's heaviness. Let those who buy, Paul says, let those who buy, buy as though they had no goods. We're people who have stuff by God's grace. And we have nothing. We have nothing that's not his. And those who deal with the world, let them deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Let those who do politics, let those who engage, live in, in function like, they, oh, like they're a part of a kingdom that's not of this world and that their citizenship is in heaven and that the king is on his throne and his gospel will not be thwarted no matter who wins, no matter what laws are passed. The gospel is not hindered. Even if the earth be removed and thrown into the sea, we have a, we have a God who's on his throne and his rivers make glad the city of God. There's nothing they can do to us. 
This world is passing away, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7. I want you to be free from anxieties. Trust God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his glorious gospel. Thank you that he was doing far more than teaching us about politics or even a new age of God and government. But he was ushering in a kingdom, not of this world, a kingdom now unseen, but here in our midst. We're in it. We're under your rule and under your reign as Christians. We want others to join us in it. We want them to trust in your blood and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And we want this kingdom to grow. We want this kingdom to come. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we, Lord, long for the day when you'll come back again and your kingdom will not be invisible but visible and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. We long for that day. Give us endurance in the meantime. Give us wisdom in the meantime, Lord. Give us, uh, give us thoughtful, courageous, loving and happy engagement with our culture and in politics and with those outside of Christ and help us, Lord, to know when we must say no and when we will not go, when we will not bend and we will not bow. Give us wisdom for your namesake, we pray. Be our vision, we pray. Amen.